So if the gospel is good news for bad people, by the way, did you know that? The gospel is good news for bad people. That implies that there's badness that we have that needs to be remedied. So if that's bad news to you, then the great news is Jesus provides what we need to recover and be restored and be forgiven and have everlasting life, even though we don't deserve any of, that, any of the above. So that's called grace, the fact that God would freely grant us that kind of forgiveness and life. And sometimes we get confused upon the, with the relationship between grace and good works. So if you like to do good, that's good. Now let's look at this passage that Sherry read for us today to talk more about why we would do good when we're saved from being bad. Actually, uh, verse 11, we'll just look at the first word for a minute. For, verse 11. So go ahead and move forward to that verse, not the whole text. For takes us back to what Paul says in verses 1 to 10. And just to summarize that for you, in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2 of Titus, Paul charges Titus, he's a church leader, uh, establishing leaders in the city of Crete, and so what Paul charges Titus to do is to speak what is in accord with sound doctrine or instruction. That sound doctrine turns out to be how Christian older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and household servants are to live and behave. And in that, he uses the word good a lot. So he uses the word good, and he uses words like discipline and self-control and all those other great words that we just love to live out. Amen? Good, self-control, discipline, yeah. And, um, and so he says in verse 10, which comes right before verse 11. Yeah, I know. <laughs> profound. Just ponder that for a minute. Yeah. I'm sorry to be so confusing. He concludes in, in verse 10 of that lead-in to verse 11, saying that the purpose of living this way is so that in everything they adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So you beautify the doctrine of God, you, you beautify the gospel, you adorn it, you make it look really good, which it is good, but you show that it's good by living good, by doing good. So that's the bottom line in the essence of this message. And we'll talk about how Paul, let's, tr- let's track with how Paul f- talks about that in verses 11 to 14, and we will make mention of how that relates to sanctity of human life as well. So verse uh, t- 11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So the reason Christians can and should live lives of good works is because the grace of God has appeared. And that means um, God's grace, well, he says it's bringing salvation for all people and that God's grace is not just for a select group of people. It is in Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection God's saving, redeeming grace was revealed, displayed, and God's grace in Christ actually accomplishes salvation so generously and powerfully that it is available for all people. So it's not just for people who have the religion gene, uh, nor for only the really bad people. It is for all. God doesn't have separate standards for different people. He has the same standard for all people, absolute perfection and holiness. So we all fail at that miserably, and that's, again, why the gospel is good news. That's why we need to be saved by the grace of God. So Paul says, the grace of God has appeared in Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, 
to provide salvation for all. And then in verse 12, he tells us that the grace of God trains us. What's that about? He says it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So the the grace that saves us is, is the same grace by which God trains us. It's an educating grace. Saving grace is an educating grace. God doesn't save us by grace only to leave us to our own moral strength and understanding as to how to live. Thank God he doesn't do that. The grace curriculum, so to speak, is not anything goes because you're saved by grace. The grace curriculum is it instructs us what to say no to and what to say yes to. He does that through his word, but by grace, he enables us and and causes us to want to do what God wants us to do. So what difference does it make that grace trains us as how to live? It is that by God's grace in Christ, we really are being transformed. Did you know that? If you have received Jesus Christ, you are being transformed and become more and more like him. Have you noticed? Has anybody else noticed? I hope so, because it is really happening. Now, where we start, we all start different parts, uh, different ways, but the way it looks for each one of us is going to be different, but the fact is, by grace, we are being transformed into Christ's likeness. And so, why is that important? It's important because it means that we are being transformed in heart and mind to love what God loves, to hate what God hates. In other words, it is becoming more and more who we really are. And so we talk about advancing the gospel, which is the title of this message, advancing the gospel through deeds, through good works. We're talking about living in such a way that we're verifying that the gospel really does, is life-changing by how we live. And it's not all up to us to make it happen because it's God's grace, and yet by God's grace, we will He will find a way to convince us that his way is best, and he will conform us to the likeness of his son. In fact, in terms of advancing the gospel, we're talking about showing people who don't know Christ that the gospel is real. That's the one thing they're going to know as much as anything else, isn't it? Is it real for you? Is this who you really are? Or are you just kind of doing some religious thing that pleases people in some way, uh, the group you're trying to please or whatever? Is this who you really are? And by God's grace, he is making it who we really are. So what does the saving grace of God train us to do? Well, Paul tells us. It trains us to renounce some things, reject some things, and to live in certain ways. So he says God's grace teaches us to renounce or to deny or to turn from ungodliness. What's ungodliness? Well, you know what that is, right? It's just living as if God doesn't matter. It's just doing your own thing in spite of what God thinks. So it teaches us to renounce and turn away from ungodliness, and it trains us to renounce worldly passions. Worldly passions, that means to renounce them is to reject going along with the ways the world desires contrary to God's will. Or it teaches us to reject the ways the world turns good things into God things. By that I mean even good things can become some of the worst things that we do. Because we idolize them. We turn them into, they take the place of God in our lives. That can be family, it can be work, it can be money. So money in in, in and of itself, the Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. So 
If we love even a good thing too much in the place of God, that becomes a, an area of worldly passion because the world doesn't have God, so the world takes even the good things that God gives us and turns them into idols, things that we pursue in the place of God. So God's grace also trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So self-controlled, not going with worldly passions, but passionate for things that God is passionate about in the way that he's passionate about them, the way that he's given them to us. Upright, what's right in God's sight, not in our own eyes, not like Israel did in the days of the judges. Every person did what was right in his or her own eyes. We do what's right in God's sight. That means we have to know what God says is right, which there's a handbook for that. And uh, that we are to live godly lives. That is God-honoring, God-focused, God-centered lives. In the present age. Oh, you knew there was a catch to that. It's impossible to do that in the present age. I could have done it 50 years ago when I was in style. It's never been in style. Some form of it may have been, but not the real thing. So we live godly lives in the present age. That's where we live, by the way. We live in the present age. And at the same time, though, in verse 13... Paul says we live in the present age, godly lives, but we do it with a future focus. So he says in verse 13, we do it waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as certain as the grace of God trains us for living godly lives now in the present age, as certain as it does that, at the same time, we know that graduation to perfection will not happen in this life. We do not reach perfection in this life. Have you noticed we don't reach perfection in this life? It's true. We can't, we don't, we won't. We strive for it because we know that there's no, nothing, that God's given us His grace in such a way that we don't have to sin, but we do. The reality is. And so, we, with a future focus, we look forward to the revealing of Christ's glory. So, uh, our blessed, meaning happy hope, We redeem that word happy. That's what the word blessed means. The happy hope is in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus. The first time Jesus appeared in or as the grace of God, bringing salvation for all who would receive him. The second time when he comes again, he's coming in the fullness of his glory. We didn't see his glory in fullness when he first came, but he came as to reveal and be the grace of God in in terms of how he lived, what he spoke, what he did for us on the cross and in his resurrection. And now, when he comes again, he's going to come in the fullness of his glory. Grace will have run its course, and grace will be replaced by full glory for us, and Christ will be revealed in his full glory. And creation will be redeemed as well. So our lives are to display that hope by pursuing and living for what Christ redeemed us for. In other words... What are we waiting for? Waiting for our blessed hope? What do we do while we wait? Hey, I'm just waiting, just kind of hanging out till Jesus comes back. While we're waiting, we live lives that show that we long for the fullness of that fullness of his glory that he will reveal to us when he comes and our full perfection. We long for that. We don't give up. We don't say, oh, it's not worth even trying just because we can't do it. We live for the direction of perfection even though 
That won't come till the resurrection. And I just made that up right now. You can thank me later. So our lives are to display that hope by how we wait. And then in verse 14, uh, Paul says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness so that we'll be zealous for every good work. So though the full perfection of our redemption from all unlawlessness, there won't be a speck of lawlessness left in us as a purified people of his own, even though that won't be complete until the appearing of Christ, you should be able to see that we long for Christ's completion of our redemption and that we are zealous for good works. We love that he redeemed us and ransomed us. He set us free. That's what it means when it says Christ redeemed us. He gave himself to redeem us. He ransomed us. He set us free from lawlessness, purifying for himself the people for his own possession. To purify us for himself. We live as his possession, and that's a great thing. We are like a bride anticipating marriage. She shows her eagerness by getting ready, by picking out all the stuff that brides pick out and getting ready with all the stuff they get ready for. And you can tell a, a bride who's, you know, who's getting ready to get married because she's just consumed, talks about it, focused, buys stuff, plans. Husband kind of tags along, does what he's told to do if he's wise or the future husband-to-be. Okay, we need a guy illustration, right? Sorry. So, guys, it's like a, it's like a, a team preparing to win the Super Bowl. Short, you can get that. We show that we, we, show that we are eagerly awaiting the redemption, the fullness of the redemption that Christ comes by, how we're getting ready now. And we want to do that. We want to. In fact, um, how do we show that? By being zealous for good works. And Paul tells us that three more times in Titus. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Remind them to be ready for every good work. Ready? We don't know what's coming. How can we be ready? That's why God's grace is always training us for good works. Training us because we don't, we don't always know what's coming and we want to respond out of the goodness that God is putting into us. So, and we, we need to be reminded. It just doesn't happen automatically. That's why uh, Paul writes in Titus 3.1, remind them, Titus, remind them, because we need reminding. I need reminding. You need reminding. We need to tell ourselves. We need to remind ourselves that that's what we're here for. And by God's grace, he'll use that reminding to spur us on. In verse 8 of chapter 3 of Titus, he says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And in verse 14, once again, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So I think we get, we get it. God redeemed us and saved us in a way that we show that we love what he saved us from and for and that we love what he's going to do when he completes the fullness of our redemption. We show that by good works, by good deeds. And then uh, a familiar passage to at least some of us from Jesus teaching in Matthew 5. I'm just going to read it make a couple comments about it. Jesus said, You, those who are followers of me, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, that is, it doesn't season, it doesn't make things taste good anymore, it doesn't preserve things anymore, 
How shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So you are the salt of the earth if you're a follower of Christ. You are also the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What is Jesus saying in that passage? Boil it down. What he's saying is you are this. He doesn't say become salt. He doesn't say become light. He says you are salt. You do flavor the world with good things. You are light. You do expose evil and and reveal what is good. Now be that. Just be that. Be, Be what you are. That's what he's saying. Live out who you are as Jesus followers. Do good and people will give glory to God. That means, by the way, that you might even tell people about God, about Christ, and that this is for His glory, so that they'll get to make those connections. So most of our good works are going to be our godliness and day-to-day family, work, church, community. One of the things that's really great about my job as a pastor, my grace gift of being a pastor, is I get to see a lot of things that you don't all get to see. And what I get to see is a lot of people doing good. And we, you catch glimpses of it too. But sometimes we look, at, whether at Harvest or other churches, and say, man, we're so lame. We're just not getting it. And that's true. We are lame and we're not getting it. But God is so gracious that he allows us to do a lot of good things. And, and so I get to peek at some of that. God sees the whole thing. I see the bad things as well. But I see how some of you just are ready for every good work, how you respond to one another when they're in need, how you, you meet people's needs and you, and you serve just because it's out of the joy and the goodness of your heart that Christ has put into you. So I love seeing that from this perspective. Other times we do plan to be strategic about doing good. We organize, we do things together. We, we can do more broad good when we come together and, and plan to do things. But even then, God is the orchestrator. He's the one who redirects our plans at his, at his uh, pleasure. And so we just need to be ready. Uh, a man named Carl Medeiros, I got to hear this weekend at Mission Connection, he tells of how he and 10 other workers with Frontiers, Frontiers is the lar- largest mission organization to Muslims in the world. They were in uh, Lebanon, several years ago. and there, So he was meeting with 10 other workers. They were meeting to strategize how they could bless the city of Beirut, Lebanon, in Christ's name. Well, one of Carl's Muslim friends came knocking at the door in the middle of this meeting. And he opened the door, and, oh, it's this Muslim friend. He kind of freaked out. And the friend's kind of looking like he wants to come in. He says, oh, you don't want to come in now. Oh, wait a minute, I think I know that guy. No, you really, this is not a good time to be here. So he finally talked the friend out of leaving. And then he felt bad afterwards, thought, what are we thinking? What are we doing? Not, you know, what am I doing? Not inviting him in and just making him a part of what we're doing because we want to do what we do with integrity. So he, uh, he apologized to the friend later and said, hey, could you help us? You know, I was a little embarrassed because I didn't know what you'd think about having ten, uh, nine Americans and one European there in the meeting room and thought you might think that we're up to no good, but we really want to bless the city of Beirut. So could you help us uh, think about how to bless the city of Beirut? And the friend said, yeah, I'd love to do that. And he said, and maybe you could help us connect with the mayor of Beirut, because maybe he could tell us even more. How can we bless the city of Beirut? He said, okay, that would be great, because the mayor is my cousin. (laughs) So he was able to connect with the mayor of Beirut, and the mayor said to them, 
um, well, would you be willing to do anything? And he was a little bit nervous to say yes, but he said, yeah, we'll do anything. He said, well, and I don't remember the reason why, but the garbage service had been drastically cut back in the city, and a lot of people were dumping their garbage in a major, beautiful park uh, in the city of Beirut. And he said, fine, we'll, we'll pick up garbage. So for several months, they picked up garbage in the city of Beirut, and it opened up all kinds of doors for the gospel. So that is a good example of doing good, uh, even in the midst of an environment where it could have been very threatening. You know, it's right for Christians to care about matters of what we sometimes call social justice. So, for example, God says, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. God calls his people to love and do justice and to hate and not do injustice. So I'll just mention a couple of verses. They're not on the screen. But uh, this one might be familiar to many of you. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So God is a just God. He loves justice. He hates injustice, and he wants us to to do justice and show mercy. Uh, In Amos 5.15, hate evil, love good. There's a command. Hate what's evil, love what's good. Uh, Establish justice in the gate. That's like saying establish justice in Congress. That's what that's like saying, or, or the Supreme Court. Um, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to his remnant people. Or this one, Martin Luther King preached from this text in a famous sermon of his, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So we should be grateful for efforts to correct injustice and to call attention to our blind spots concerning matters of justice. A lot of times those are problematic. It's not perfect. We have people who uh, don't agree with biblical points of view, but they sometimes have insight into a matter of justice that we need to pay attention to. We don't buy into all their assumptions, but we listen to what people are saying about matters of justice. You know, in the early days of the pro-life movement, um, some criticized pro-life people of only being concerned about the fetus, as they call the baby in the womb, and not about the women and the circumstances that led them to think aborting their babies was the best option. Oh, pro-lifers were accused of not caring about the babies and the tough or tragic circumstances into which some of them would be born. So, Probably some of that criticism was valid in isolated cases. I don't think largely it was, but uh, we're to look at the speck in our eye and not and, and see that as the log. We look, look at the log in our own eye and not the speck in the other person's eye. So today, I think more evangelical Christians are against the circumstances of teenage poverty, for example, that lead to abortion. They're against sexual abuse and human trafficking and are involved in efforts to prevent these evils and help victims. More are adopting and doing foster care, but some who are zealous to fight these wrongs are becoming more ambivalent about abortion. They may still see it as wrong, but they're not as willing to speak out about it or or make it an issue of of voting. And people will write, this is just a political issue. Lots of things are political issues that are biblical issues, so we can't separate, well, that's political, I can't deal with it, but we want to do all that we can to stop evil and promote good. It's as if the abortion issue, hey, that's so 1980s or 90s. It's not cool to be speaking out against abortion and taking action against abortion anymore. But can we really claim to be social justice uh, warriors if we ignore the millions of unborn children silenced and snuffed out in America at the altar of convenience? 
can we overlook the corporate, corporatist worldview of Planned Parenthood that has industrialized abortion? We can't. At the very least, we should continue to pray that the truth about what abortion is, and here's the truth about what abortion is. Abortion is the killing of an innocent human life. Abortion is shedding of innocent human blood. We pray that it becomes increasingly known and admitted, and as a result, that abortion becomes rarer and rarer until one day we look back at it like we do slavery today. How could our ancestors have done this? How could they have treated other human beings as not deserving to live? How could they have brought, bought into the lie that a small human being is not a human being? Or worse, they know it, but their consciences are so seared, they think somehow they still don't deserve to live. Do we need to review why a person is a person no matter how small? As Horton said in Horton, here's a who. Human life begins at conception. The SLED acronym is one that I've shared in in past years. I'll share it again. SLED, S-L-E-D. Size. Size doesn't make a person more or less human. Otherwise, short people would be less human than tall people. And that's kind of threatening to those of us who are shorter. L, level of development, doesn't make a person more or less human. Uh, Some say that self-awareness makes us human, but then an infant is less human and less deserving of life than a five-year-old. Are we willing to carry that out to its logical conclusion? E is environment, S-L-E, environment. In the womb or out makes no difference. doesn't make you more human to be out of the womb as to be in the womb. Any more than when I'm in the hospital, I'm less human than when I'm home. My wife would probably say I'm less human when I'm at home than if I was in the hospital. Or D, degree of dependency. Degree of dependency doesn't make a difference in terms of whether you're a human being or not. Degree of dependency would say that, well, if I'm insulin dependent, I'm less human than if I'm not. Or if I'm in kidney dialysis, I'm less human and less deserving of life. So... It's invalid to say size, level of development, or environment, or degree of dependency determines our human, human status as human beings. So we need to just say the statistics again this year. In 2009, 1.15 million abortions were performed. Uh, the good news, if there is good news in that, is that that's down from 5% from 2008, the bad news is that's still 3,150 abortions every day, 131 an hour, over two a minute. There's been over 50 million since 1973. Many people who are involved with abortion, whether a woman aborting or, or uh, a man who's encouraging it or families that are encouraging it, are carrying shame. Uh, many of them are just like us, evangelical Christians, who because they felt they could not bear to be, have the shame of being pregnant, um, chose to abort. So there's a lot of shame being carried. And so those people who are experiencing that kind of shame need the gospel. Uh, you, if you've had an abortion or been involved with encouraging someone else to have an abortion, are not less loved by God because of that. If you're in Christ, you are, you are completely forgiven and he would only ask that you bring that to him so he can bring about healing and, and uh, the restoring of your conscience. 
So it's not the unpardonable sin. It is covered by the blood of Christ and forgiven completely by him as people receive Christ into their lives. Well, we advance the gospel by doing good whether the community or society we're in sees it as good or not, such as this issue with abortion. Uh, So most of the time, everyone agreed that Jesus was doing good by healing people. So most most people would say, yep, what Jesus did was good. But when the religious leaders stood ready to accuse him of unlawfully healing on the Sabbath, he asked them, is it lawful to do on the Sabbath? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy life? He then healed the man. So they were saying, it's wrong to heal on the Sabbath. Don't heal on the Sabbath. No work. That healing is work. Don't do it. And Jesus said, is it wrong to to restore and to protect and preserve life on the Sabbath? Nope, it's good to do that. And so he did it. So when the culture with its agenda, not about the Sabbath, but about religion of self-serving choice, devalues human life, we must say it is lawful to save life. It's not lawful to destroy life. We advance the gospel by doing good, by serving people in ways they experience as good. So we show them the love that God has for them. We affirm the gospel as good news as it motivates us to share the goodness of God by doing good for others. But just as God doesn't alter his standards to save us by grace in Christ, remember, being saved by grace is not God altering his standards. It's because God was so committed to his standard, and yet he was so merciful that he designed a way that he could be just and justify us at the same time and have mercy on us, and he did. So in that same way, we don't alter the standards. So just as God doesn't alter his standards to save us by grace in Christ, so do we not only do the good the people approve of as good. In other words, we do lots of good that people like, feeding the hungry and so on, uh, helping the homeless, helping people get jobs. Those are, most people recognize those as good things. But it's maybe not popular to take a stand for abortion. And we do that because it's good in God's sight. Romans 12, 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Sometimes overcoming evil with good requires speaking out against the evil and doing what you can to stop it. It never means we act hatefully or, or bitterly toward people. We speak the truth in love. We still need to communicate so that people know the truth. We don't do them favors by shading the truth. Abortion is the taking of an innocent human life, a defenseless human life. But there always is a way to overcome evil with good by showing mercy and compassion while helping people see the truth. This is what Pathways does in providing pregnancy care. Uh, For example, ultrasounds show the truth that the baby inside is a little person. So that in 2013, and this is in your insert you got from Pathways, uh, they said that out of... They said that 86% of the 62 who had ultrasounds said they intended to carry their babies to term because they saw the truth that that little person inside them was a person, not just some lifeless lump of tissue. Uh, A pastor I spoke to this weekend said that his church and about 12 others were providing a mobile ultrasound service around Portland with a van. And so there are ways that we can help people see the truth and reach out to them in compassion at the same time. And I just ask, what passions or needs do you see? And I ask that because that is what has given rise to several of the ministries that we're seeing uh, get off the ground today that are doing so much good that we have the privilege of participating in. So uh, like Lee Sander Jeske and Harvest Kids, 
Uh, Cindy Lund with Track, She and Reach Adventure Camps, Foster Care Ministry, ki- Kids, Ministering to Foster Kids, uh, Orphan Care, because the passions you've had. And so that is how we can do good together, by you sharing your passion. And we can't give equal focus to everything, but we can give a lot of focus to some things, and then we all have our own areas of, of doing good as well. So the message title is Advancing the Gospel in Deed. Next week, we'll look at advancing the gospel in word because the essence of the gospel is that it is a message, a message not about our deeds and our word, our works. We're not saying, hey, look at us, look how good we are, but the, the deeds of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We can do all the good deeds we can for people. We can help them out of poverty, get medical care. We can help them get jobs or homes, get out of, being human, uh, out of human trafficking. We can help them clean up their garbage help them get off drugs and alcohol. We can help them give birth to their babies instead of aborting them. We can help them have a better life in this world. But only through hearing the gospel of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ will they be able to believe in him and have eternal life. The people who have done the greatest good in this world have sought to help unbelieving people come to faith in Christ. So, for example, William Carey, missionary in India back in the 1700s, 1800s, stopped widow burning in India. He didn't go over there knowing he was going to do that. He went over there to bring people to Christ, to bring the gospel of how, do you, how they could come out of the darkness into the light of to have eternal life. But in the process, he sees needs and addresses them. And so that is how it is with us. We know that the main thing people need is the gospel, but in the process, because God loves them and we love them, we want to do good for them. And if that's stopping widow burning, then that's what we, that's what we do. Or William Wilberforce in the 1800s, member of parliament in Britain, almost single-handedly stopped the slave trade. After much rejection over decades, he kept it up, and he stopped the slave trade in India. And missionaries, often missionaries get a bad rap for being culture wreckers, culture destroyers. If you've been in college, you've taken a, a, a sociology class, you've heard that. And sometimes missionaries have blundered pretty badly and done foolish things that have not been helpful. But the legacy for many and most of them is they leave the society in a better condition than when they came through education and hospitals, for example. So that should be the legacy that we live because we are being transformed ourselves to the gospel so our lives display the goodness of God, though not perfectly. We have to keep saying that. We know that's true. But we show it in personal godliness, family life, and work. A lot of times that's, that's the everyday uh, context where our lives show the good works that God calls us to. But the more we become like Jesus, the more good we want to do in this world, both in meeting people's needs in this life and in sharing the gospel with them so they may have eternal life. Showing and sharing the gospel, they don't oppose one another. We do both always at the same time. Sometimes we give a little bit more emphasis to one than the other. We're always about doing both. So the best good that we can do in this world is just a fogged-in, dim, dull preview of coming attractions of the perfect, eternal, glorious kingdom to come. But people need to see Jesus through us. They need to experience his love and mercy through us. And very often this is going to mean through the integrity of our lives, do they line up with what we say we believe? People are always wanting to know that. If I'm professing to be a Christian, does my life line up with what I'm professing? And so that's great good when our lives are hopefully, largely, lining up with what we profess to believe. And at the same time, um, it will be through our kindness and acts of love toward them 
that we show them the love of God. This doesn't mean that it's all up to us. It's only by the grace of God that any of us is saved, and it's often in spite of our lack of faithfulness rather than because of it. But God does work through us, and it is more likely he will use us to draw people to Jesus the more we are like him. Carl Medeiros, the man I spoke of earlier, he's um, quite an expert in, in Muslim uh, ministry, and he's, he's been given a unique ministry in, in that he's able to, he's, he's been used of God to get leaders in Muslim countries to do these Jesus studies. He says, you want to become more like Jesus, right? I mean, because the Quran talks about Jesus. Yep, yep. Uh, you, you respect Jesus, right? Yep, you do. Uh, don't you want to learn about how he did leadership and become a better leader? You do want to do that, don't you? Well, yes. So he gets them studying the Gospel of Luke. So peppered around Saudi Arabia and uh, Lebanon, for example, are Muslim leaders who are doing Jesus studies. That's not bad. But he says the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt was educated at a university in, in the U.S. Um, that was the University of Southern California, I think. Yeah, as Muhammad Morsi, I believe he was talking about Muhammad Morsi. At any rate, if it wasn't him, it was a Muslim leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. And uh, one of the things that turned him off to Christian America, so as he, you know, they consider America to be a Christian country. So whatever America does, that's Christians doing that. Uh, one of the things that turned him off to Christian America was that no one ever invited him into their home the whole time he was here as a, as a university student. Uh, Carl said he came here as a nominal Muslim and left here a radical one. Now, certainly, there are other dynamics going on in his life, but what if, just what if, a Christian family had shown him hospitality? I don't know if there's any Mohammed Morsi's in our group here today, but maybe we could invite someone for lunch. Just, just a thought. Well, I think I'll just stop there and let's pray and we'll continue our, our close with the time of worship through song. Father, you are good. You are so infinitely good we have no idea because we don't see anything close to perfect goodness in this world. But you sent your grace to us, the grace of God has appeared in Jesus, training us to deny ungodliness and worldly desire and teaching us to live godly, upright, God-exalting lives. Forgive us, Father, for the, all the good that we fail to be ready to do and that we fail to do. And help us to be more ready for every good work. That's what you say your grace saves us for, and just because we know the process won't be complete until Jesus comes back, we strive and desire and earnestly want to be more fruitful in good works that will adorn the gospel, adorn your teaching, adorn the gospel, and cause it to, to be more readily apparent to the world for the beautiful truth that it is, because Christ is glorious and beautiful. And Father, because we've focused on sanctity of human life. That's a beautiful thing. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you, Father, that you made us in your image. Thank you that we are, we are people 
who can know and relate to you and, and love you and love others. Thank you that we're human beings and not turtles or tarantulas or termites. At the same time, we know that because of the fall of us into sin, that we have really messed things up quite a bit. And because you are so good, and because you're so perfectly holy, and because you're so rich in mercy, you did send us your grace in Christ to redeem us from every act of ungodliness and lack of goodness for being zealous for good works as we long for the fullness of your redemption that will come when Christ returns. So help us to be fruitful and overflowing with good works in our families, in this church, in the community. And Father, I pray specifically, Father, for those who are impacted by abortion this day. We should all be grieved over the fact that so many human lives are being taken and seen as defined as a health issue or defined as something about rights and not for what it is, the taking of an innocent human life. So I pray specifically and especially, Father, for anybody who has been involved with abortion in any way, that they will know that you are the purifying, life-giving God who loves them deeply. And they don't have to remain stuck in shame or guilt or hardness of heart, for that matter, over that matter. Thank you, Father, that you redeem everyone from whatever sins we've committed as we turn to you and seek your mercy and grace in Christ. So bring healing, Father. Bring healing to all those who are, who are harmed through abortion. We glorify your name. We thank you, Father, for your grace and peace that you grant us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.